I've learned not to think too much about exactly what I'm going to do until I start hearing it. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. On this episode, I got to speak with world-renowned saxophonist Scott Hamilton. In our conversation, we talk about his musical roots here in Rhode Island, plus his experience playing with some big acts through the years. We also touch upon a handful of the nearly 200 albums he's been a part of, including his own approach to recording. Scott will be performing alongside his longtime friend and fellow legend Duke Robillard on November 18th and 19th at Chan's in Woonsocket, and I highly recommend you check these shows out. And on November 20th, Scott Hamilton is being inducted into the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame. This is truly one of my favorite interviews because of the history that it covers and the insight that Scott provided. I hope you all enjoy it too, and thank you so much for listening. Yeah, so Scott Hamilton, it's uh, truly an honor and pleasure to uh, get to speak to you. Um, you know, as a native Rhode Islander, uh, you've gone on to some amazing, huge international success. But you know, with this podcast, we focus on Rhode Island music history, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I'd just love to kind of learn a little bit more about uh, where you grew up and um, kind of what that experience was like. Because it was you grew up in Providence, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, what what uh, part of Providence? On the east side. My okay. Dad, my dad was a, a painter and uh, he taught. Like an at, artist? Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. taught at Rhode Island School of Design for, mm-hmm. uh, from 1947 to 1982. So uh, we grew up uh, first on John Street and then uh, and when I was around 11, we moved to. To Creighton Street behind Hope Pike Field. Oh, okay. Just in time yeah. for me to go to high school, where I I, I uh, <laughs> only had to walk across the field. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what was your your life like back then? Like, was music always around? Um, yeah, my dad liked jazz, you know. And uh, okay, uh, I, I I would imagine I I would have been a musician no matter what kind of music I heard, but jazz was the music that I heard when I was little. Mm-hmm. And I was immediately like fascinated by it. So I, <clears throat> I've always thought of myself as a musician, even when I was three or four years old. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. And, and later on, I, you know, when I was 10, 11, I, I uh, listened, listened to what was on the radio and cause I wanted to, be with my friends you know and uh, and we i so i listened to a lot of pop music and mm-hmm. uh, uh, later on a lot of blues and uh, then i started listening to jazz again you know yeah okay um yeah i mean th- that kind of takes into uh, you know you are again like I, I said you're you know 
world renowned for as a as a jazz saxophone player. Um, but that wasn't your first instrument, correct? I mean, you played drums no. and clarinets and that's right. You know, yeah. Um, I took can you talk about that experience? Yeah, I took clarinet. Well, I, I played the drums first. I wanted to play the drums. My father yeah. didn't want to be a drummer. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. Told, he told me all drummers are stupid. So. Oh, well, I'm a drummer, but, so I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was my father. I didn't believe it either. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, actually, I think he came around in the end. You know, cool. But uh, <laughs> uh, but it when when I was young, he had definite uh, he had definite uh, beliefs. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, he was so they they put a piano in my room and I started playing that and uh, I I actually kind of still wish I'd been a drummer if you want to know the truth. I, oh wow, okay. I, and and often wish I'd been a piano player, but I but I'm not. Uh, mm-hmm. I uh, I started taking clarinet lessons from Frank Marinaccio uh, downtown in the the building where Gears Drums was, where Lupo's was. Oh, okay. Yeah, I uh, was on like the third or fourth floor. I started in 1963 and uh, I took lessons from Frank for you know two or three years anyway. Wow. OK. And that gave me the background that I needed later on when I was a teenager and I, I took up the saxophone. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, I, I was playing gigs like the, the week that I got the horn. I didn't sound very good, but uh, <laughs> But yeah. I could think I could finger it and I, I knew how to blow it, you know. Yeah, cool. He um, gave me he gave me a good solid uh, uh foundation, for, yeah, to all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. But you were pretty well known for, for playing harmonica as well, right? You played in yeah, that we was, talk about that, uh, that? that and, was my first professional experience was as a harmonica player. Uh-huh. I saw I I mean I had Paul Butterfield records. Oh, and, right, yeah. Uh, and uh, Charlie Musselwhite. And I I I saw the Jay Giles band, the rig- original version of the Jay Giles band in 1968 on Thayer Street. Oh, okay. Uh, there was a coffee house on Thayer Street called the Tete a Tete. And uh they had all kind of guys played there. Kenny Lyons, I saw and uh, uh, Marty yeah. Mull. Martin Mull had a band called Soup. I remember seeing that. <laughs> That's cool. And uh, and I saw these guys with that uh, Magic Dick playing the harmonica. And it, that was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I was fascinated. Mm-hmm. So I started learning how to play, um, you know, like a diatonic blues yep. harm. And was and, that just self-taught just from listening to? Yeah, I, yeah. I just, I just practice i used to practice on the street walking around when there was nobody around like sunday mornings and things oh okay and uh, later on i i hooked up with some guys on fair street that uh were looking to start a band and i ended up we had a band for two or three years in the in the early 70s starting yeah. in 69 and what band was that it was called the bottomland blues band yeah okay and, Joe Barger uh, was the singer and the piano player. Yeah, he's still he's working all the time up in uh, outside of Boston and uh, around. He's the the uh, the rabbi of soul. Oh, all right. 
check that out then. Joe's great. He's he's wonderful. And uh, we had uh, Fred Bates on guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Ricky Davidson and John Bliss. They were were from Cranston. And uh, we played all kind of gigs. We used to play at Brown University. Mm -hmm fraternity parties and we used to play junior proms and uh i mean we weren't very popular at those things but but we used to do them yeah we played little concerts around providence and uh, and we uh we even played uh we even played benny wood's latin quarter downtown one time uh, okay which was a, a kind of a very exotic uh for a bunch of white high school kids. That was <laughs> yeah, because like, how old were you when uh, when uh, you 15, were? 15, okay, sixteen. Yeah. yeah, fourteen when we started. Yeah. Okay, wow. And how would you describe that? I mean, like, I mean, obviously it's a a blues band, but like, was it um, certain stuff that you were pulling from for that? Yeah, we we did a lot of Muddy Waters songs. Okay, a uh, little Walter and and. Uh, uh, it's sort of the the general repertoire at the time. There were also guys that could really play in Providence at that time. Doing mm-hmm. play. the Kenny Alliance uh, had the like a tombstone, tombstone and stuff, yeah. and that was Duke and uh, Duke Robillard and uh, Steve Nardella and Mark Tabor on piano, yeah, and Tommy DeQuattro on drums, and that was. I mean, that they they were. I mean, they were adults and they could play <laughs> and we <laughs> were, great, we yeah. were, we were suitably impressed, uh, mm-hmm. but that gave us, uh, uh, you know, people to, uh, model ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, uh, it was a good atmosphere. I mean, we, we made a tape and they used to, the guys over at deep WBRU used to play it. And, oh, uh, nice. you know, we, we did okay. Yeah, it was 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 fun and was fun we had a great time I even worked over at Bobby's during the summer, 1970. Oh, cool. Uh, with Ken Lyons, because because uh, uh, Steve Nardella and Duke had gone off to to have their own band, uh, mm-hmm. which was also a great band called Black Cat. Yeah. And uh, Kenny wanted to, he was trying to hold it together, the, the Tuesday night gig over at uh, Bobby's so he came and hired I was I was going to like uh, they had like a thing a governor's school for the arts at uh, RIC in those days and uh, I was I was at that 
And one day Kenny Lyons showed up and like pulled pulled me out of <laughs> out of <laughs> class or whatever. Yeah. Tuesday night to play Tuesday night. Drink people beer. like, is that your dad? And you're like, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was unclear. I think. But I, I told him, I said, look, you know, it's a professional opportunity. Yeah, you yeah. Know, if you yeah. guys support the arts, you know. Yes, I, of course. No, it was terrific. And I got to play with, with Mark uh, on that gig, and I learned a lot from him. Uh, he was... Mark uh, uh, was, Mark Tabor? Or? Mark Tabor, yeah. Because yeah. Mark, was, Mark was playing a lot of... Uh, harmony that was basically jazz harmony that, that mm-hmm. i didn't know at the time and it was uh so it was it was uh, in addition to being a very soulful player mm-hmm. in general you know yeah i, I learned he's a lot brilliant yeah. yeah i love mark he actually played my wedding uh so no i i love mark yeah he's uh yeah me I, too yeah. yeah um so from that though i mean you started playing saxophone kind of shortly after that though right it was around yeah. like 15 or so like how, what was that transition yeah. like what like kind of inspired that transition to start playing sax well i i you know i had an alto which i used to play a couple of tunes on the alto once in a while but i wasn't very good mm-hmm. uh, and uh, i didn't really work at it very hard but i we started fred and i started hanging out at, at uh, duke robillard's house and he would play records for us, you know. Oh, okay. Duke was living on Brownell Street, which was um, like where 95 goes by the State House, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it was like the last house on the before the fence. You okay. Know? So, you know, everybody, everybody was just basically being bombarded by carbon monoxide all the time. <laughs> Yeah, but I shouldn't laugh at that, I, but yeah, <laughs> but I, it was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, but I, it was wonderful. We'd go there, and Duke would play all of these amazing records for mm-hmm. us, and there were a lot of saxes on on these records. Uh, there was a lot of rhythm and blues stuff from the fifties, and uh, a lot of jazz records, big band records, and things. And I I started, of course, to think, well, maybe maybe i should try to get started on the sax now while i'm still capable instead of waiting if i wait two or three more years it'll be uh, i i need to get good on it you know okay so i kind of made a switch and uh the other thing was that that joe our singer and uh, Ricky and John were were leaving town to go to college in Boston. Okay. Yeah. And so this was with the Bottomlands band. It was kind of just yeah, dissolving. Just yeah. Fred Bates and me were left. Mm-hmm. We said, "Well, what the hell? We'll, we'll start a band." I mean, there was no way you could have a jazz band uh, in those days unless you had a name. I mean, okay. we, we we could go down to Allery's and ask them for a job, but there was no way we'd get hired there. They were a bunch of kids, you know. Yeah. But uh, but we could have a band that played dance music, and we didn't have a singer. And we played blues all night, basically, but uh, but with a sax and a guitar, and, uh, and we had Preston Hubbard on bass. Oh, okay, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, for a while, we had a drummer, Ray Washington who was a local guy, you know, played very well. 
And um, we started this band. We called it the Hamilton Bates Blue Flames. Mm-hmm. And we, I don't know, we just we just hustled gigs. Uh, we did okay in the colleges. We used to play the School of Design tap room in the Brown uh, Grad Center bar and things like that. Yep. But, but when we worked in in like bars uh in central falls and and uh you know warwick they really hated us they they couldn't under we would just we would just sort of talk our way into gigs and uh, yeah and but it was good practice Was like jazz popular at the time and in this area when you were doing it? Is that what the mm-hmm. some of the hurdle no, was, or I, was it just were, that you guys there were, were the guys? There were the guys that played at Bovies. Uh, there mm-hmm. was the, the there was the big band. Uh, yeah, and and uh, uh, those guys were uh, they had a following, mm-hmm. and there were the guys who played at Allery's, uh, Mike Renzi, and uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Rudy and Artie Cabral and. And they they had a, certainly had a following, but they'd mm-hmm. been doing it all their lives, you know. Yeah. Okay. And so it was, was just the newness of your band. Tony, and there was Tony Tommaso and the Jewels of Dixie. They were they were popular as well, and I, I'd known those guys since I was a kid, little. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as working a jazz gig, it wasn't. There, there was a place that opened when I was just just out of high school there was a place that opened there used to be a club called the warehouse down um skip chernoff had it and it had like big big name rock bands and things like that it was down at india point it was like where the old berry building used to be yeah after skip left it became the jail oh yeah yeah i used to see duke down there in yeah 70 71 and around 1972, it was bought by a guy named Al Fisher, and it became called Al Fisher's Place. It was like a black club, and it was featured good jazz. They had a mm-hmm. Richard Lee, who was an organ player, and Willie Love, who was a great tenor player, and uh, Jerry Sisko was the drummer. They were fabulous, and they used to let us sit in, so I learned a lot of stuff from those. Cool. Guys. That was a great experience. Yeah, yeah. And you did some of the early shows at Lupo's too, is that correct? Or actually, yeah. By the time Lupo's opened, we were we we were kind of doing all right because uh, Dewey Dufresne had opened a place called Joe's Upstairs mm-hmm. on Fountain Street, and I think he opened either before Lupo's or right around the same time. Oh, okay, 
And uh, we were like house band at Joe's upstairs. A lot of people came to see us there because we'd work Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesdays uh, every week. Mm -hmm. And that went for some time. But um, uh, and after that, yeah, we played Lupo's. I played Lupo's several times. And I played there af even after I went to New York. Mm -hmm. I played there with Joe Jones in oh, uh, cool. in like 1976, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah. But you, uh, I mean, you're talking about uh, Duke and everything. Uh, you've also connected with like Roomful of Blues uh, mm. pretty early on as well, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah. And I think you you played on their first album uh, as did, well. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about well, some of that experience? Well, Duke was my hero, you know, I and mean, he still is. You know, he's he's fabulous there's mm -hmm. nobody and um he he showed us all how to how to play a solo you know oh, okay like really really what to do in in a very big way and uh when as as he put room full of blues together we I would hang around and we'd go out and hear them as many times as we could. We'd go up to Boston or mm -hmm. down Esterly or we'd hear them out. They used to play in Pawtucket at a place called January's and they used to play in Smithfield at a place called Gulliver's. Mm -hmm. And we would go out there and hang out and I, they would always ask me to sit in. So it was good experience yeah. for me. Well, and, Later on, after I went to New York, those guys came down. I think it was 1977. Those guys came down. They finally got a recording contract, and they were being produced. They were on 57th Street in the studio with Joel Dorn. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was right around the corner from my apartment, you know. So I was going over there to hang out. And yeah, listen. yeah. Record. And I ended up playing a tune on Greg Piccolo's horn uh, that ended up on the record. Nice. I, I was I was really flailing kind of uh, on that, but I'm very proud to be on that record. I mean, you talk about uh, New York now as well, and uh, that seemed to kind of be a lot where your your jazz career came together, mm -hmm. synthesized there. Um, can you talk about some of that and some of your, you know, first recordings? Like, what was your first album, at, like, under your own name? It was around that time, right? Late, late 70s? 77, yeah. Which, what was that album? Uh, I went out to California to, to do a... Uh, uh, 
a recording session. They they were doing a record uh, called A Tribute to Duke on Concord Records. Concord was kind of a new label. They'd been around for two or three years and mm-hmm. had some success. Joe Pass and uh, Herb Ellis. And uh, Jake Hanna was a great drummer from Boston. Uh, lived out in L.A. And he was kind of a talent scout for Concord. Oh, okay. He, he had a band with a wonderful tenor player named Richie Kamuka. And Richie uh, became very ill with cancer and he couldn't make the date. And so he called me and flew me out there. And uh, after we did this, this was like a kind of a, it was almost like a a benefit album. It was for the Duke Ellington Cancer Fund. And uh, it had Walter Cronkite on it. And uh, 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 Andrew Young and uh, Rosemary Clooney was on Mm -hmm. it. It was Bing Crosby's last record, I think. Oh, wow. Anyway, it was quite exciting sort of a thing in that respect. Yeah. But they, the guy from Concord, Carl Jefferson, said, well, you want to make an album? And I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> we went out to dinner and, and like figured out a couple of songs, and I, I recorded after dinner. And cool. so I came back the next day to New York with, a, with, with an album, but you know, it didn't come out for about a year. Oh, okay. But you've stayed pretty prolific with all of that, correct? Like it uh, Yeah, yeah. Like you've uh I you've been a part of the 100 records or so, right? Is that uh have, are you keeping if count? You wanna count <laughs> if you want to count the ones I've been a part of probably probably closer to 200 now. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. And and as far as under my own name and and uh, shared billing with somebody else, there must be a hundred at this point. Oh, wow. Okay. If not, if not, there's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's 80 or something like that. Yeah. I, I'm only guessing. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I've, I've made a lot of records and, yeah. and in recent years, I've done a lot of recording as well. So mm-hmm. even though I'm, you know, the record business is quite different these days. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. still a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to work for free, you know, lots, <laughs> yeah, okay. lots of opportunities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I get just, you know, I mean, that that's such a incredible uh, amount of work. Um, but in general, like, what is your writing process like or what it kind of goes into creation of your albums? You know, um, I mean, obviously you worked with a tremendous amount of people as well. Um, but yeah, again, just kind of in general, like what is that like nucleus of an idea of you're going to start a record? Is it, does it kind of start with, you want to have a certain sound to it, or is it just kind of what you're, what's coming out of your horn at that time? And then you just go with it. Like, what is that like for you? I kind of, I've, I've kind of got a, uh, I've got a list going all the time of ideas. Oh, okay. For, for the last 40 years, I've, I've I'm always thinking about, um, about uh, things that might be good, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I write those down. And then uh, I prefer not to do records that have a theme, but people oh, okay. who sell people who sell records prefer you to do records that <laughs> so yeah, have some sort of story of, that they can sell with it as yeah, well. Yeah, it yeah. makes it easier. It's very yeah. difficult to market, like. Mm. 75 quartet albums that don't have a theme. You know? 
and, yeah. and I've, I've given them that challenge, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I, the fact is when they don't have a theme, they're usually better records because I, I can put different elements together and make something out of it. But mm-hmm. I've learned not to, not to think too much about exactly what I'm going to do until I start hearing it. it once okay. I start hearing it in the studio, I have an idea of how it's going to sound. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with the guys that are chosen for the date and the uh, material that we've started on. It, it also, I, I, I always have a list of songs before I go to work, but uh, it could be, it could be a surprise. I could end up doing something different. Sometimes okay. it's my mind right in the middle we don't have a lot of time in, in the jazz business. Uh, most of us don't have a lot of time to record. So if I'm lucky, I get two or three days in and the studio. Yeah. So I do a lot of things on the spur of the moment. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was, I, I did an interview with, with Duke Roblard, uh a year or so ago, and he was actually oh, yeah. talking about that um, of like, when he would go into the studio, we'd kind of have like a framework, but he would like purposely not even show his band the songs yet because yeah. they kind of like that fresh ear to it of it like works. what they're like would come with, you know, rather than this like super practice, you know, mechanical yeah. thing. He'd be like, here's the framework of what it's going to be. And we're going to do a solo now. And they just, you know, he works with the caliber of artists that can do that. And it sounds like it's similar for you as well. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. It is true. The thing is, even if you're working with guys that there are a lot of good musicians in the world that really do not like being surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, I prefer to surprise them a little bit anyway because <laughs> because it works better. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just the fact that uh, often first takes are the freshest and the best. It's not just that. It's it's just somehow uh, putting everything in place and rehearsing it. It kind of takes a lot of the blood out of. Uh, mm-hmm. the whole thing for me mm-hmm. and and uh and and like you said i'm always working with guys who are quite capable so mm-hmm. they can follow your curveballs or whatever you know so yeah <laughs> you know i did a couple of records for duke in uh, warwick in recent years we we recorded with tim ray and uh uh dave dave zeno and mm-hmm. uh, and my Buddy, the late uh, Jimmy Gwynn, mm-hmm. and uh, I with those guys, I, it was no need to uh, talk to them about anything ahead of time. Yeah, guys of this caliber, uh, they they just play uh, they just play everything well. Yeah, that's cool. You know, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Very little talking necessary, you know. That, that's that's yeah, that must be fun. Uh, yeah. so just kind of creating that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, with your vast career, like, are there any memorable moments from these recording sessions that, that kind of stand out or like, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to put a hundred albums into a nutshell, but is there, um, anything that kind of was a special moment of a person you got to work with or one of those like synergistic times that you're like, wow, this just you know, came to another level that was unexpected at after this session or something like that. Is there anything that you'd, you know, think of I don't know. back I, then? I, 
you know, the funny thing is, is that re- recordings are always different than they feel when 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 you do them. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of the sometimes the best things uh, of all were uh, a little undistinguished at the okay. time. Yeah. It almost didn't seem like anything. And there, and there were other times when, I mean, I always felt uh, as far as like uh, the company I was in, I've always felt really, really fortunate that mm-hmm. way and not in a, a, a trying to be modest kind of a thing. I just been really lucky you know, mm-hmm. to, to have been in such a such a variety of different situations mm-hmm. uh, over the years and and it it hasn't let up really there's mm-hmm. still it's still interesting it's still mm-hmm. fast and i love working i love playing live i love performing and mm-hmm. uh, i i must say i'm a bit happier these days in the 80s 70s and 80s i was working very often in in all-star groups and okay. playing at festivals we we do the whole festival circuit during the summers and i was that was great for business yeah and great because i got to meet a lot of other musicians mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you got to meet all of the biggest names uh, of of the time you know? mm-hmm. but uh it wasn't very satisfying musically whereas uh, like the creative process of it like just, yeah. i just yeah. enjoy playing for i think jazz works really well when you're playing for a small audience and they're, oh, okay. they're quite, quite close to you yeah and that's how i grew up playing was mm-hmm. like like bobies you know mm-hmm. like some guys at the table like two feet in front of you and yeah yeah uh, it works really well in that situation and um uh, I find as I'm getting older, I'm playing more and more gigs where it's like that. You know, yeah. I just play. I have, I play for a hundred, hundred or hundred and fifty people most nights, and mm-hmm. I, I'm very happy. yeah i mean i guess just to mention some of the the names that you've played with i mean you've mm. uh you know played in rosemary clooney's band played yes. with benny goodman tony bennett you know like um yeah how was that for you of because you were pretty young as well like being on these you know, big stages with, and on yeah. on tv and all this stuff you know so um yeah i i uh well i you know yeah it was was 
frightening a little bit <laughs> uh, yeah. back then. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, you handled it. I handled it as well as I knew how, uh, mm-hmm. which wasn't always well. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I got I got through it most most of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was still and I was thrilled to, mm-hmm. to be with those people. I went to New York and started working. The day after I arrived in New York, I started a six week gig. Uh, me and Chris Flory were playing with Hank Jones's trio in mm-hmm. uh, Michael's Pub. I mean, it was it was unreal. Mm-hmm. Really. And after that, uh, played with Anito Day, and uh, I I worked with. Uh, uh, I started working with Rosemary a, a bit, and I was working with Benny. Goodman all during that time mm-hmm. um, and it, it was it was very exciting and mm-hmm. very uh, n- nerve-wracking in another way you know and, yeah and, and uh, difficult uh, to it was difficult to know what to do at that age I I I didn't I didn't really have time to to find myself until I was in my thirties music. Okay. And, uh, and by that time I, I began to piece together more or less how I wanted to do it, but I've always been a kind of a natural player. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's how I got away with it before I had time to brush up on things. <laughs> oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I was, I was kind of, goofing around a bit but i i i've improvised all my life and i can kind of goof around okay uh, uh even yeah. even when i was young and stupid so yeah you know and, and the, the fact is you just don't say no when you're when offered they, mm-hmm. opportunity because you never know they might be the last chance you ever get mm-hmm. yeah um and just like another, so you also played in George Weems' band, correct? Uh, yeah, for a long yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that? And I'm assuming that, that was, you was know, connected great. with the Newport Jazz Festival and stuff. Yeah. Was, yeah so what was well, that like? I got in that from Ruby Braff brought me into that band in um, 1982. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of exciting because it was a, a chance to go across country and play a lot of places. George had a, a he would get these tours where we were uh, kind of like part of a, you know, those subscription tickets, community concerts and things like that, where you play places that a jazz musician never plays. We played in, uh, you know, like Des Moines, Iowa and, and okay. uh, uh, Billings, Montana, you know, Laramie, Wyoming. Oh, well, and, of course. Laramie, Wyoming. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, well, it was fascinating. That's we cool. Played Juneau, Alaska, you know. Wow. It was it was great because uh, in addition to sometimes playing in Chicago and L.A. and San Francisco with that band, we also played all kinds of crazy places mm-hmm. that I never would have seen mm-hmm. Uh working regular jazz gigs uh mm-hmm. and later on uh, the band changed warren veche joined and norris turney and it, it, it was always a good group it was always a good band and george was uh, a good friend and uh, not nice company and a very smart guy mm-hmm. and 
and a good band leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I stayed, I think I was there for like almost 15 years. Oh, okay. That. And in the end, we were mostly working overseas, mostly working oh, okay. in France and Germany and places like that. But it got to the point where I realized I wouldn't get hired. People in France uh, were not hiring me because they thought I was, I belonged to George, you know? So, uh, oh, okay. I had, I had to, that was my reason for leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, talking about people that you play with, uh, I, I guess you talk about your relationship with Dave McKenna, the piano player, ah, you know, like you kind of you mentioned that, that you had like a special, you know, like, or he has a kind of a rare space of, in your, you know, people that you yeah, play with. Can you talk about that? Because well, he's funny. another Rhode Islander here, so, you know, through those yes, that don't absolutely. know. I, I, I mean, Dave was, I, I admired Dave more than um, almost any other musician I've ever heard in my life. I mean, I, I just have, I can't even begin to say how much Dave's playing means to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't meet him in Rhode Island. I, I knew okay. who he was. I, I'd heard about him, you know, but it wasn't until I moved to New York. I went out and I bought an album that he made up in Boston. Uh, uh, at uh, Jordan Hall. This must have been around 1977. And I started playing it every night when I was going to sleep. I was listening to this record. It was so incredible. His playing was so uh, unique mm-hmm. and and powerful and, and emotional. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started trying to set about ways trying to think of ways that i could arrange to get to be around him you know mm-hmm. in which case jake hannah and i decided we would we oh i know what it was uh, one of george ween's assistants charlie bourgeois called me on the phone and said i want you to come out to play this jazz festival in milwaukee mm-hmm. and it took a lot of money so i just want three of you It'll just be Jake Hanna, Dave McKenna, and you. And I said, fine. We don't need a bass player with Dave, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, that was my in. That was my oh, chance, cool. chance to play with Dave. So we went out there and we did this gig, and it, it kind of went well. And uh, uh, shortly after that, I talked somebody into hiring us to play somewhere else. And then I talked Carl Jefferson into coming and recording uh, the three of us uh, together. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave had a steady gig playing in the the, the roof of the Biltmore Hotel. Oh, you know, okay. It was like a glass windowed lounge up there. Yeah. And cool. he was. It was the middle of winter, and he was playing up there. This I don't know why he wasn't at the. Coplic Plaza. Maybe this was like in between years at the Coplic, but uh, he was playing there every night of the week. And mm-hmm. so the only way we could record, we had to go down to Warren and we recorded at this studio that I recorded with Duke a couple of years ago. It's kind of a famous studio, it turns out. Uh, they've done a lot of pop records and rock records down there. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's it it must be the only famous recording studio. Yeah, it is. Um, 
Uh, Normandy packed. sound, right? Normandy. Thank yeah, you. Normandy sound. Yeah, cool. Normandy. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Anyway, we did this record in 78, 1978. And uh, that was my first time in there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and after that, uh, we we just kept trying to arrange. We we talked Dave into doing all sorts of things he didn't want to do, like touring <laughs> all stars and touring touring Europe. And he, to tell you the truth, he wasn't very happy with it. But uh, but we were. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I, I got very. In the end, I think Dave and I were very close. I I uh, I flatter myself to to say that, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was, he was really, he was really something else. There's really nobody in the world like Dave. just uh one other album i kind of wanted to bring up just because i was going yeah. through some of them um you made an album i think it was 1993 scott hamilton with strings oh, um, yeah. and you know I, I admittedly i'm not a uh jazz connoisseur i haven't listened yeah, to yeah. too much but that one just really caught my ear like just having that additional element of a string section playing along with you it had like another like uh just the the feeling that was in there yeah. um, was something unique to, to what I've heard. So I don't. I just kind of wanted to hear a little bit more of how that kind of came about, and and you know, is that something that is you know like a common thing that that you might be able to find? Because at least to me, it seems that a lot of the quartet stuff is what's good, but having this other string section took it to this next level. So I just I, I really like that album. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I'm glad you like it. It's I'm really proud of that album, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it, there is a tradition in mm-hmm. in jazz of uh, horn players wanting to record with with uh, violins, you know, yeah. wanting wanting that cushion, that mm-hmm. that uh, support, and uh, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. You know? Okay. It really depends. They're very expensive to do, and it depends on uh, a lot of different things. But I was fortunate, again, uh, the Carl Jefferson, uh, Alan Broadbent had been bothering Carl Jefferson because he, he wanted to arrange. He, he, was a, he said, I'm a great 
writer for strings and nobody will hire me to do it. Oh, okay. And he, he, he said, I, I can prove it to you if you give me this job, you know. Mm-hmm. Carl said, okay, well, you have to play with my sax player, you know. And it worked out really well because I'd been thinking about the album for years. I'd been thinking about it since the 70s. Okay, well. I just hadn't had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I... I had all kinds of good ideas for songs that I think would work. And because Alan is a kind of a genius uh, himself, uh, mm-hmm. he, he really did something that I never could have imagined. Uh, he, he wrote arrangements that were more than just accompaniment. They're, they're fantastic. And mm-hmm. And he was given the budget to have, you know, like 20 strings and and a really good rhythm section with uh, uh, Bob Mays and uh, Roy McCurdy. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the best string players in Los Angeles, uh, the guys, the people who do the movies. And, mm-hmm. and, and it, it really worked out well. And, yeah. It it sold twice as much as any other record that I've ever made. Oh wow! Okay, and so it was a success as well. Yeah, and I I just think it's really good. I'm I'm happy if anybody even hears it now. Oh. I don't know. It's not probably even in print. I don't think, but it's probably on Spotify, right? Yeah, yeah. I just found it through like uh, yeah digital stuff. I was just uh, looking on mm-hmm. like YouTube has has a copy of it up there. Oh, so, good. Um, but. Good. I'm yeah. just happy. I'm happy if it's out there, you know, because I think I, I, I'm like I said, I, I, and I was playing well at the time. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fantastic album. Um, but uh, yeah, just a couple more albums to yeah. kind of touch on just because, uh, you know, we'll tease it now or hopefully people already know, but you're going to be playing with Duke Robillard here in Rhode yeah. Island, uh, November 18th and 19th. Um, and we've talked about your friendship and the times that you've played with him, but you've made yeah. several records with them. You know, you played on oh, his yeah. album, uh, you know, He's swing and then swing it again. And yeah, exa- yeah. So, uh, can you talk about some of those albums and what it's been like, you know, having him play on your stuff and you play on some of his stuff, uh, and uh, just what that relationship is like in the studio with, between you and Duke. I, it's very comfortable. Uh, I, I am. I'm just happy to be around Duke anytime. You know, when mm-hmm. he's, as I said, he's he was my hero when I was a kid, and he's a, a very old and dear friend. And mm-hmm. he's also a musician that I admire tremendously. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we've done things, we made we made one album back in the '80s up in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, mm-hmm somewhere out in the country outside of Boston that called swing that yep. was, uh, I think really good. And that album sold very well. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of Duke's Duke had been playing jazz for a long time, but mm-hmm. it was like, uh, the first time he really recorded an album like that. And I used uh, a lot of the guys that I, uh, went to New York with from Providence, Chris Flory and uh, Phil Flanagan and Chuck Riggs. Chuck was, Chuck's from Westerly. Okay. And a uh, uh, wonderful drummer. 
and uh, Mike Ledon on piano, who's a now a very well-known jazz pianist, mm-hmm. and uh, who was also a good friend of ours and guy that we played with. And the album came out really well, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not sure. I, I every time I used to come back to Duke moved to Pawtucket after a while and bought mm-hmm. a house there. And every time I would come back to town, Duke would have some little chore for me <laughs> down in the basement. You know, like I'm yeah. like, okay, you know, I've been working on this thing for the last two years. You play after the trombone player and before the singer, you know. And so I would. <laughs> I would do my best, you know, mm-hmm. and it's a very good record producer. Mm-hmm. And uh, they come out sounding fabulous, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I I always knew he would do something with it that was good, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually I had an opportunity to call him for a gig. Mm-hmm. I was doing a record in uh, New York. It must have been around 1990. 798 around that time and uh i got him to come down on the train and and play three or four tunes on the record. nice and nice that, that came out really good and and then we did it again um on the last album i did for concord that was like 2006 around that time we we recorded at rudy van gelder's down in uh, new jersey and uh, he played great on that record mm-hmm. as well. And he's produced two records of mine uh, for this label. It, he's got Blue Duchess. Okay. So we did a Billie Holiday collection mm-hmm. and did a, uh, a, a record that's like the music of Julie Stein, who's a great songwriter. And... Uh, do produce both of those so uh you know things it, it is always some we made a record with jimmy witherspoon in the, oh in okay warwick one time in the early 90s that which is very good mm-hmm. so i i can't even remember now i'm remembering yeah. things that we did that i didn't even remember I'm sure we'll have a good time this uh this month uh we we did a gig together down in new york in july mm-hmm. we did a week at uh birdland down oh, there huh. with, with, with duke's band and myself and mm-hmm. a couple other guys and uh, it went very well so i i think you know this this will be fun yeah yeah um yeah to, to kind of get back into that to you're playing friday november 18th saturday yes. 
November 19th at the legendary Chans. The legendary Chan. You know, yeah. uh, 8 p.m. for both shows. Um, you know, tickets are available now uh, at chanceagrolsandjazz.com. And uh, what can people expect at these shows? Um, like, do have you guys been working on a certain set or you guys just kind of be <laughs> winging it Duke the, is, in, in perfect fashion, in amazing fashion, you know, like, I, you know, <laughs> but. Duke uh, is more, uh, Duke, Duke, Duke sends me a lot. He hasn't this time. I think he's been too busy. When yeah. we went to New York in July, he was sending me song lists for like for, for like weeks before. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I I thought they all sounded good. You know, mm-hmm. like I I seemed to me like it was going to work with anything he mentioned. You know, yeah. And and in the end, uh, we didn't we we didn't stick with one show. He he called different tunes every night and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's going to be his band, and I'm going to be a guest. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the the best way to to yeah. do this. And 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 I'm going to play whatever Duke wants to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to do awesome. You know, uh, I think it's a really great uh, treat. Uh, like, when was the last time that you've played in Rhode Island? Has it been, uh, I mean, uh, recent or how long is it? Uh, I played a gig at. I played a gig at Chan's in 2019. I think that's okay. probably the last time because I was, I I did some gigs with Donna Byrne uh, and uh, Marshall Wood, and then I, I think that was it. I think that was the last time. I, I think I played two different nights at Chan's. I played once with Mike Renzi and, okay. and once with Tim Ray. Or no, it was another guy. He was good too. I can't remember his name from Boston. And nice. That that was my last. Uh, that was my last Rhode Island gig. So mm-hmm. it's been a. Been yeah. A, well, they shut us down for a little while. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, you know, for those that are listening, we haven't uh, mentioned it, but uh, Scott has been traveling the world and is now home based in Europe and Italy right now. So yeah. it's actually been probably the most like logistical uh <laughs> thing I'd have to do for a podcast interview with trying to figure out time zone changes and well, everything like well, that. But especially uh especially so. because especially because this is like the the one week of the year that that there's five hours difference instead of six. Yes, so, exactly. Right? Yeah. We had it match up against the time change. So yeah. <laughs> but uh so that's why I come up as uh you know it's a real real treat to have Scott come back uh to his home states and uh get to play for you all. So if you're listening, um please make it out to these shows. Yeah. And and then that Sunday on that weekend, you're going to be inducted into the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame on uh, November guess, 20th yeah. at, at 1 p.m. at the museum space in uh, Hope Artis in, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. So um, do you have any thoughts about that? Does it uh, mean anything special to you as, you know, kind of coming from this yeah. like home state being recognized for your impressive career, you know, and being inducted, you know, with, I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I, I am, uh, uh, absolutely thrilled, but I, I, I kind of, uh, I, I, I don't think I've ever gotten anything like this before. So it's, uh, it, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I'm I'm trying to talk my sister into coming down because I, I it'd be my chance to see her. She lives up in Maine, so oh okay, and get her to come. Then uh, we'll be 
family there to be good. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, I've got a, I've got a cousin, um, Barrington, and he might come. But most of my family is uh, either on the other side of the country or, or my extended family. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, we didn't really have any relatives in Providence because my mom and dad uh, had both come there originally in different years to go to the Rhode Island School of Design. That's how they ended up in Providence. So, okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, I've, I've still got some friends that I, mm-hmm. I would imagine might, might come throw something at me. <laughs> that, that'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I've been able to be a, a part of that since the beginning. Yeah. And I do have to say it is, it is a really special moment to have people come together and just to see, you know, your, you know, a snippet of your career that, you know, everyone yeah. that's there is so worthy as you are. Um, but to see this giant exhibit, you know, that you're going to be unveiling, uh, and there's going to be the induction, uh, ceremony at that time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it can well, be a, a special moment, old, you know, a lot of my old friends are on the roster there. So yeah, I mean, we've talked about I'm, them, you know, Dave McKenna I'm, and Duke is in there and yeah. And Mike also, Renzi you and, know, yeah. uh, uh, George Leonard and mm-hmm. Ruby, Rudy cheeks and, yeah. uh, 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 there's a Duke, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, I, I think it's terrific. I'm mm-hmm. very, very proud. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, but yeah, as we're kind of just wrapping some stuff up, I mean, you've still are extremely active as a, as a touring musician. Um, yeah. what has that been like for you? And like, and also like, what is your practice schedule? Like, are you, um, you know, like to, to stay on top of that stuff, are you, you know, constantly practicing or is just through constantly performing? That's what it is. Or, you know, I'm what's, your, what's your experience life now as a, as a musician, as a working musician? I did a lot of practicing when I was uh, 17, 18 years old at mm-hmm. home, uh, as my neighbors will attest. But uh, after I moved to New York, I did very little. Uh, it it I, I never developed good uh, discipline in that sense. Okay. But I've been working. I've been working pretty steadily since I was twenty two. Mm-hmm. Uh, like having having enough gigs that it's not necessary to practice unless you have something that you need to figure out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in other words, the physical the physical benefit of practicing is is i think uh better better done on on the gig because mm-hmm. you, you work harder and you it the results are more effective mm-hmm. uh, than playing if you're playing in your room it never seems to prepare you enough for, for the, the for the actual performance yeah whereas, whereas if you're playing every night I don't know. I during the lockdown, uh, I was uh, quite nervous about uh, coming back after like a couple of years mm-hmm. with very little playing, and and it was very slow getting started. But I think the last couple of months, I I worked almost every night, and uh, I was wow. pleased to see that that 
I actually got, I'm, I'm almost better again, you know. <laughs> almost better again. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost all fixed. <laughs> yeah. 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 I yeah. had to kill myself playing to do it, but uh, but it does have a good effect. You mm-hmm. know? Playing every night, it really uh, it really does the trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, and yeah, I just have one more question. You know, kind of yeah. uh, to sure. you know close us out. Just you know, with your long career and you know hundreds of albums, thousands of shows. Like, <laughs> is there a piece of advice that you would give to a musician from your own experience that you'd like to? you know, pass along to them? Well, I never know what to say to people. Uh, you know, I think it, it, if you're going to be a musician, you the only people that last in this business are people that can't imagine themselves doing anything else. Because mm-hmm. even if you're a good musician and you you can imagine a different way of life, you're you're bound to go that way after a while. Mm-hmm. This really, it's really tiring and uh, inconvenient, and uh, doesn't loan itself to uh, a, a lot of. You don't make much money, you know. You mm-hmm. you, uh, you don't have any security. You, but the the thing is, uh, if if that's what you need to do, uh, then you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And and I think if if you're the both if you have both the musicality to 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 be a good musician and the 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 drive that means you need to do it all the time, then nothing I say would ever stop you from. Mm-hmm. Being yeah, it's true. Yeah. Whereas whereas the other way around, uh, you know don't kill yourself you know like uh, <laughs> there's there's better ways to to make money and there's certainly better ways to live you know mm-hmm. but uh i i wouldn't be happy you know? mm-hmm. yeah no that's that's pretty true yeah I've, I've done a lot of interviews and looked at my own career too and um yeah there's something that is uh just within me that keeps that drive going because yeah i mean i've stopped being as uh as active with it, but I can't stop playing yeah. music, you know, even though it doesn't make any logical sense and it doesn't make any money and it takes all this time, <laughs> whatever. It's like, I still need to do it. And my wife's like, you need to do that. You know? So, um, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, and just, if you have somebody around that understands that it really helps. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's good. It's good for us in some way. Right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, your music has brought so much joy to so many people over these years. And, um, yeah, it really was an honor to get to talk to you. Um, again, everyone that's Thanks. listening, please uh, go see Scott and Duke at Chan's November 18th and 19th and uh, buy his albums. Um, if, <laughs> yes, if, if you haven't, you know, you've got a lot of catching up to do, but, uh, you know, go, yeah. go buy some records and, uh, yeah, support Scott. And, um, yeah, thanks so much. I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you and uh, meeting you uh, yeah. hopefully in a couple of weeks. So. Oh, yeah, I'll look forward to that, too. Uh, uh, please make sure that we get a chance to talk for a minute. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Scott. Thank you, James. I really appreciate it.